It's daytime, but hundreds of burning Kuwaiti oil wells have turned day to night. The visibility is extremely difficult for this news reporter and driver who's finding it a challenge to stay with the convoy of vehicles. As the darkness envelops them, the jeep loses contact with the Saudi military leading the way. They're left alone in the desert, surrounded by landmines. They must choose to drive on in the dark or slowly navigate their way by foot using a small flashlight. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just life. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She's dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. Who got to watch history, you know? Who got to stand at the gates of hell? I like it was shocking to me that I was getting to do this stuff. Susan Zarinsky, or Z as she's affectionately known, is the senior executive producer of the award-winning crime and justice series 48 Hours. But this powerhouse and highly respected journalist has worked in news since Watergate and is no stranger to war and conflict. In 1989, Zarinsky ran CBS News operations out of Panama during the United States invasion and was in charge of CBS News operations in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square student uprising and military crackdown. She was also on the front lines as the senior producer in Kuwait while covering the first Persian Gulf War and was part of the CBS News team and the first network to enter Kuwait just behind Allied forces. Her work and programs have earned virtually every major journalism honor, including multiple Emmy Awards, a George Foster Peabody Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence, the Writer Guild of America Award, and the DuPont Award from Columbia University. In 2013, she was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award by the New York Festival's International Film and Television Awards. Susan Zarinsky is a legend and a national treasure. It's such an honor to be able to sit down with her in New York and hear just some of her incredible stories. I am with uh, Susan Zarinsky, or uh, as she's commonly referred to, Z, affectionately referred to. I looked at the weather forecast this morning. It said uh, gusting winds up to 40 miles an hour, uh, rain, uh, basically rain and destruction. If I, if I t- start to fly away, just grab one or both I'm, ankles and just hold me on. I'm going to hold you. The flying and nun has always been an icon for me. <laughs> so I always loved this, uh, this, this setup. And, and, uh, and, and I was talking to Scott, who I've been working with for 27 years. And I said, Scott, I said, what do we do? You know, it's, it might rain. And, and uh, he said, well, you're talking to Susan Zarinsky, so I think we should just take a risk. There you so go. here we are. So in the event that you start to fly away, the rain starts flying in here. I and look the same in rain as I do in dry. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a one look girl. Yes. Uh, for better or worse. Well, we've got the little gazebo here for you. And right. we'll, we'll, we'll escape inside and we'll just reset and we'll finish everything I think, off. Yeah, I think the gods are with you. What I love about you, uh, Susan, and, and I think everybody admires about you is that you are this passionate storyteller who loves to take risks yeah you you like you like uh, when it when you're a little scared uh, about telling a story and I live in scared you live in scared. I, I, yes fear, yeah, can you explain fear. what you mean when you say you live in scared I, I don't think there's a single day that I wake up that 
terrified is not in my first six words and I get up very early because I like to work out early because you never know what the day is going to bring I, I just I think I live on the edge of fear because I'm never quite sure I have it I'm never quite sure it's going to work I'm never quite sure of my own intellect I'm never quite sure of the people who I have to convince to play with us and talk to us but I think I, I you know at this stage and I'll, I'll not my age is pretty well out there but let's just say I'm one of five people still on the old pension program at CBS <laughs> which qualifies me as really old um, but I but nobody's told my brain that so um, I think living on the edge of fear is my motivator but it was born of insecurity and now I just don't let it go I'm never that person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room and I never am the person that thinks I've got it all so I'm open to a lot of different paths in because I think you're in anything you do and especially in television and especially in journalism you're better for taking in and then processing and putting it back out I want to go to a, a story that you've told before but it's it sort of speaks I think to your character your risk-taking your your drive to tell the best possible story the, the night that you woke up Dan Rather and and you said we're we're moving well I didn't quite wake him up we were um, it was it, we started the first Gulf War actually in in New York and we had a bunch of people in uh, Baghdad at the time I got to set CBS up on a 24-hour plan because unlike a cable network we were siloed broadcasts you know from X to Y so I designed a plan that had a 24-hour clock with different people from different broadcasts, broadcasts and different shifts, different people in videotape. And so when the war began, I was actually in New York, you know, running, running part of the operation and on some of the shifts. Um, but so at some point, uh, fairly soon afterwards, the war was shifting. You could feel it. CBS had a camera crew and a correspondent, Bob Simon, and uh, P um, uh, Peter Bluff, they were held captive. They had tried to go without the military. They were captured by the Iraqis. They were in jail with the crew. And so the office was a bit paralyzed. And I thought this would be a good time to move Dan Rather into Dharan, which is where we were based. And within days, literally, we made the decision that being part of the Pentagon pool was not going to get you anywhere at any point, at any time. They, it was really the first time the Pentagon had instilled these pool rules. You were embedded with different units. I was getting video back at a very odd rate. It was unpredictable. So um, we made the decision that we were gonna design two different groups of people. Um, we, um, I had two fairly extensive rental Jeep kind of uh, cars and, and Jeeps and things. And so we painted them, we camouflaged them, and I had two military advisors. So we decided we're gonna have one group go straight up the Corniche towards Kuwait, and the other group would go kind of in through Iraq and then up to Kuwait, hoping to actually beat the military. Um, it actually cost CBS a lot of money because I destroyed four vehicles, or at least I painted them in a clever camouflage way. So as we were doing this, this was just this incredible operation. And before we knew it, one of my teams actually was behind the Allied forces 
and was the first network in broadcasting from Kuwait as the Allied forces took over and the Iraqis beat, it, beat their asses out of town. I mean, literally, that was where the highway of death was. So uh, it was like in the middle of the night, and I decided I didn't want to wake up people in New York because they would be sluggish anyway. The um, military had come around. They said, we're, we're going um, to take a plane into Kuwait. We'll be there for hours because the Allied forces are there, and then we'll come back to Dharan. I thought, wow, great. We could, you know, get tape. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get two crews. I'll get two producers. Put Dan on that plane. Everybody's like, we're scrambling. We get on this plane. And then, uh, the, you know, within about 30 minutes, somebody else comes in and says, we're going to take a contingent of press and drive up through Kuwait. And I kept thinking, drive? That means we could anchor out of there. Wow. that!" And I said, how long do I have? And they said, 28, like no more than 30 minutes. So I, walkie-talkies, pre-cell phones, walkie-talkie on the plane, you know, and it was a guy named Bruce Dunning who was um, the uh, bureau chief in Tokyo. He was on the plane with Dan, and I'm going, Dunning, Dunning, Z, Dunning, Dunning, Z, have you taken off? He goes, no, no, we're just taxiing. I said, can you stop the plane? I mean, it was all journalists and military. And he goes, what? I said, can you stop the plane? And it was like, uh, I have no idea. I said, I want to get Dan off. Better option. You guys can go in, take pictures, come back. I got to get Dan off that plane. And so he said, okay. So meanwhile, I am with one other person, and I realized I can't jump in the CBS vehicle to drive across to the airfield, which is just directly across where our hotel is, because women can't drive there. I started to get into the car, and people were yelling and screaming and in Arabic, and I'm not an Arabic speaker, but I realized that I might as well have been naked going into this car. Right. So I just got this guy from the lobby. I had no idea who it was, and he <laughs> he got in the car with this other person, and we drive up to the tarmac, and I could see the plane kind of stopping, right? And the back stairs come down, and Dan comes off looking very confused, and he looked at me, and, he, and I, my heart's like pounding out of my chest, and he goes, I certainly hope you know what the fuck you're doing. And I said, me too. <laughs> and 20 minutes later, I've thrown him in a motorcade and I'm behind. And indeed, like it was the journey from hell. I mean, it, it was like, you know, you're, you, you're in these surreal situations. Don't tell me the end of the story because we're going to oh, go yeah. back to that at the end. But I just love that he says, I hope the, I you hope know. you know what the fuck you're doing. And Dan had this thing. And it was when he was seethingly mad, he would put his tongue in the back of his back molar, sort of like. And um, when that tongue went backwards, you knew you were um, dead. And um, or hearts pounding, oh, right? Yeah, I mean, your heart's no, thinking. I'm, I'm because I'm like I've just changed everything. I'm throwing people into a motorcade. We're trying to get the equipment and you know the satellite dish and enough petrol because land of petrol there was none because the oil fires were burning. Yeah. So those are the good old. I I I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. You, you've seen so much. Tell us about going. Right, right back in the beginning when you were in the trenches back in the Watergate days. Uh, I mean, what a time to... Well, I was in college, and I got, a, I got a Saturday job answering phones at the Washington News Desk. And it was pretty good because I didn't date very much, so it 
kind of gave me some place to go. Why were you not dating Susan? I have no idea. Okay. You were more interested in the news? I had no idea. You, you did say that uh, a good story is is like good sex. Oh, yeah. So, well, it but is. I, I presume I mean, if was, you weren't dating, you thought the stories were better than the sex. Well, I, I definitely, <laughs> I mean, anybody could like get drunk and, you know, have, in a, have a thing. I, but... I got to stake out Attorney General John Mitchell in the back of the Jefferson Hotel. While your friends were drinking. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I was living, I mean, I was so weird. I was living in the dorms. I mean, I wasn't even not, I was living in the dorms. So it was incredibly exciting. I mean, my assignment editor, the assignment editor during the week, um, really uh, thought that we could find Deep Throat. Mm. So I think I went to every garage in a 50-mile radius of Washington, Virginia, and Maryland with a camera crew who, who said to me, you've either pissed somebody off or you're so hungry, you'll do anything to get noticed. I got so entrenched and, I don't know, it was so, it was seductive because it was so important. And journalism at that moment was literally holding a White House accountable, a Congress accountable. When you feel the empowerment of something like journalism back in the 70s, it, it really changed my course because it was filmic, it was important. And I, I said, I called my dad one night and I said, I know what I wanna do, I, I wanna do this, I wanna be a producer. Because you also had the dynamic impact of, of stories that were so visual and could really have a, a dynamic impact. Plus, I loved being in the in just in the hot spot of news. I mean, literally, but, but I'd go back. I'd go back to my dorm yeah. after having staked out like the attorney general, and everybody would be puking into the toilet and regaling about their latest sexual escapades. And, you know, I was with a 60-some-odd-year-old uh, cameraman who had drawn the short stick to go to with go me. To go out with the junior. Yeah, to go out with the kid. And um, who he, he was a cameraman with me on the White House. And we'd, we'd arrive at some city, and uh, I would always hire an ex-cop uh, off-duty to be a kind of courier for us and know, know the drill. And they'd be looking, I guess, for some, because they'd talk to me on the phone, some taller, more statuesque woman, and they'd say, I'm looking for the producer from CBS, and the, na the guy's name was Cal Marlin, uh, bless him, and he'd say, you see that uh, tiny girl over there <laughs> with the uh, braids and uh, clogs? That's her. He goes, what? So the idea then, I mean, being this young, ambitious woman getting into television, and then one day you end up as the senior well now you're the senior executive producer of 48 hours and 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 i know you've you've said oh do i really have to talk about how many years i've been doing that but we're talking about more than four decades of television experience storytelling experience do you have a pen that you can poke in my eye no i mean but i can't believe i can't believe it is it. is it it's gone fast do you feel oh like my god I, you know it's extraordinary to me and occasionally i get these kind of like Oh my God! The the network news division president's twenty years younger than I am. But then I look. I had this kind of epiphany in my birthday, and I looked around my wall, and I thought, Wow, he won't have gone to war. He won't have covered a campaign. He won't have done documentaries. He won't have covered the White House. He won't have run politics. He won't have ever been on a convention floor. And I think, I'm okay. I kind of wonder 
am I ever not going to feel as aggressive as I feel? Just talking about the idea that you end up working with people who, like you said, maybe haven't gone to a war, haven't covered an election. How do you avoid being frustrated by the fact that sometimes you're surrounded by decision makers who don't know what you know, meaning that they don't know what they don't know. Right. And, and they're not necessarily making informed decisions and maybe walking down a path where they're going to make mistakes that you can see them walking towards. I think that if you have been around a long time, it's your job to voice in a, po in, in a way that doesn't feel like, oh, this is the way we used to do things. Mm -hmm. I'm open to other things because I'm never the smartest person in the room. Right. So well, you never want to be, right? Nobody well, ever I, wants to be the smartest person in I the room. I don't know. I, I feel like I can benefit from somebody younger who might have a better way. Yeah. And if I don't think it's a better way, I will say, would would you consider like doing this? Right. I felt like, like I, the wealth of experience is crazy mm. that I had this because I was not a high achiever in, as a younger kid in school. I struggled in school. And so it's like all of a sudden it's like, how the hell did this happen? Right. And how the hell am I this old? And how the hell did I go to all these places and have all these experiences and and like be so attached to so many different people yeah. across the globe? Like, I can't believe that I was lucky enough to do everything that I have done. I, I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't, you know, but I, I do think that because I was so enthusiastic and willing to go places, my husband who worked at CBS for many years, we, um, we were on vacation in France and the phone rings in the middle of the night and Beirut was exploding. And it was the foreign desk and they said, and they knew we were living together at this point. And they said, one of the two of you needs to go into Beirut. Like, go, fantastic. And actually, I think I had just come out of Ar the Argentinian This is while you were on vacation, all of this. Right, right. I thought, this is fantastic. And it, this was true. This was at the end of the Falklands War. And Joe had been in London. I, yeah. And I had been in Buenos Aires. So we, were, we had met in France to take a vacation because we hadn't seen each other in a couple months. And so the phone rings. And I'm, like, totally excited. And they said... Uh, is Joe there? So I thought, shit, he's going to get to go into Beirut and not me. So he picks up the phone and he goes, let me call you back. And he looked at me and he said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And I said, what do you mean you don't want to go? He said, I don't want to go. I, it's not a place I, I think it's kind of, you know, sketchy and I'm not sure. And I said, I'll go. And I said, and then I said, you have to go. You can't turn down something for what? Like, really? So he went. I didn't think he liked that kind of stuff as much as I did. I did. I love that kind of stuff. I think the difficulty when you go into these zones, and it's much more dangerous now because you don't know who the enemy is. A child could be strapped with a suicide right. bomb. You speak about the, the, the power of telling stories that have real impact. Like, on 48 Hours, you're able to do things that affect change, that change the outcome of people's lives. Yes, I, I think there's something about going into a war zone, a, you know, Tiananmen Square, where the, where the world is focused on a cataclysmic change. You know, I, I really, that's what 
was such a draw to me to be in the place that everybody was focused on. As a matter of fact, I, I found it difficult often to come home and because nothing felt as big or as important. As important. I feel at the end of our lives to know that you've had some impact on the world to me is the best thing that you can do. Like we're all here, we're given this gift to, to be able to do something with it. Even 48 hours, you know, you can get somebody out of prison after 20 years. Like, how did I get to do this? Yeah. How did I get to stand at the, at the gates of hell and be a recorder of history? I mean, like, like I couldn't get into Harvard, but I've been asked to speak there now. I mean, like, I, I, that, that's how, how did you that got happen? In. Well, it, you, that's how you got in. I, I, there's a quote that I, I love from you, and it said, if there's a breaking story like a mass shooting, you can go in, in 48 hours and turn around a powerful story behind the headlines. Uh, just speaking about that, the, the fact that you now have this power to share these very impactful stories. You know, the nature of the beast now, because of the digital and CBS has CBSN, it's actually harder to um, really propel yourself into prime time because of the way the networks are, the cable, there's so much out there to break through the cacophony. It has to be important. It has to have yeah. legs. I'm telling you, when the attack happened at the Pittsburgh synagogue, yeah. the president of the news division called me and said, do you want to take this on tonight? Or what are you thinking? And so that proved to me that that my ability to kind of still do that is is alive and well. It is why is that important, Susan? Uh, why why I, is it I, important to share those stories? If you're a journalist, you want to be able to have an imprint on events that change the world. And the 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 reality is, with an, whether I, I never forget Newtown. You know, I was I was having a business lunch with Charlie Rose actually, mm. and and it came over my it, my my phone started to like go nuts, and um, we went in and it was interesting because it was so horrific. I I di I, I called the West Coast and I said, um, you know, we talked about a prime hour, and our show is on on Saturday, but it was such a big story. We were going to do a second night, and I never called sales. And they were mad because they had not warned advertisers. And so at about four o'clock in the afternoon, mm. I get the uh, wave back and I said, how could you have even thought I would do anything else? And because I am a law and justice show, you're not gonna come on with a spousal murder when children have been killed. I said, um, so they said, well, you've got an extra nine minutes of, of commercial time because these advertise we can't put advertisers in. And I said, fantastic. Of course, that was a big money loss for CBS. Right, but so, more storytelling time. More storytelling time. And you've worked against so many deadlines to do that, where oh you've my really God, got breathless. so deep very, very quickly. When the Paris attack happened um, at the Bataclan and the multiple restaurants all over Paris, it happened to be the night before a major presidential debate. Yeah. And um, it, was a, it was Saturday night. We were actually in post-production just finishing the Saturday show. And it happened at like five or six o'clock in, in Paris at New York time. And um, I called, CBS was the pool, it was our debate. 
I, I called uh, the president of CBS News and uh, the Washington bureau chief and I said, we have to do this tomorrow night because we were the hour before the debate. Yep. I said, we have to set this up. This has got to be, we've got to do this. And I didn't really say, what do you think? I just launched. And um, I couldn't really get people in place in time. So I, um, I, London was scrambling, Paris was scrambling, and I just said, whatever you're doing, you have to think prime time. Mm. As a journalist, you want to be part of a big event. Yeah. You just do. Uh, we live in a cacophony of input, in you know, sources, news. Is it frustrating to you, Susan, that there's so much information out there now that is not informed, that is just a, is clickbait, it's just, some headline and there's no real substance behind this story and then the really well told stories are not getting gaining the attention yeah I, I think you can't put Pandora back in the box right and I think that in fact more people are informed about more things than not but we are you frustrated by this constant call for call out of fake news when you know there's real substance behind that information yes. You know, look, the, the whole uh, fake news, uh, you know, label is, is, is partially correct. There is a lot of fake news. Um, but the reality is, if you really want to understand and know, there are places to go to. We live in a cacophony of inputs, of sources. The, I think the thing that's harder now is that if you have a certain political bend, yeah. you go to that venue that gives you what you want. Well, yeah. and, and it's like what, candy. It's it, the kind of candy that you want to eat. It's cotton candy. Yeah. And it, unfortunately, then you're not broadening your horizons to perhaps listen to another point of view. Is that dividing the country, do you think, Susan, the fact that you can find the candy that you want, so you go to it, you keep it's eating hard. it? It's, it's, it makes it more difficult for us as a country to kind of say, okay, this has happened. What are the elements to this? And how should we as a country react? Because you may go to X or Y, whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, whether it's right wing, left wing, and you're not opening yourself up intellectually yes. for another opinion. It is difficult when truthfulness doesn't seem to be the most important thing and that's I think what we as a people have to sort through what is truth accountability and um, it's difficult it, it's it's difficult and it calls upon us journalists it calls upon the civilian population to say isn't truth the most important because democracy Bob Schieffer says this in every speech he gives and so do a lot of people. Democracy can't exist without a free press. Yeah. Without a free press. We can't be intimidated. Got to stay focused, do our jobs, and report it as it is. Do you ever feel like you could, you wish you could turn back the clock and go back to less opportunity for people to have a voice? You have to accept what is. Yeah. You just have to accept the world the way it is. And, and, but and you're one of these people that just like adapts just you adapt have to, to adapt yeah. you know um, resiliency is the key to life yeah in your personal life in your professional life what what do you think about uh, the, the idea of coming through the ranks like for people to be storytellers to start in the trenches 
Well, the trenches are different now, you mm-hmm. know, and I never think that there's one path right. in. Um, I think the difficulty, the only thing that I feel sorry about now in the digital divide that we're in are people don't always get to go to the place and stand there and meet the people who are just regular people who are heroes. You know, you, you got to touch something. You got to get dirty. You got to smell it. You want to see it. You want to see the environment. Um, and so much now is remote reporting. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, if you want something, you can have it. Yeah. You can do it. It's funny because 48 Hours began as a Cinema Verite show. I wasn't there in the beginning. It's but 30 they spent years old now. 31 30 years old. Yeah, We're in 31. the 31st season. And, and you've been there 22, I think? I think so. so. I don't count. I, you know, I usually say if you've been someplace, you know, if you've been someplace 10 years, that's amazing. If you've been someplace more than 20, you're a schmuck. <laughs> I met you at Kelly's. We got talking. Uh, I loved your energy, your, like infectious energy. And you said, hey, listen, the next time you're in New York, come and see me. So I come over to your office and your office, how would you describe it? Um, it's uh, the only thing that's missing. Yes. Are the first lady's gowns. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to really, and I have this at home too. I like to have the things that have been part of the journey. Yeah. And in my office... It's, it's crazy. I have everything from Dan Rather's manual typewriter from his White House days. Yes. Um, the old school. T- an, a manual typewriter. Yes. You know, uh, pick, 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 pick. To um, lots when of I was photos. cutting. Lots yes, of lots really of photos. Cool photos. Crazy photos. Um, Ed Bradley and I on the convention floor. You um, talk a lot about Ed. You really had a soft spot for him. I had a great soft spot because he just, he loved what he did. You know, Dan Rather also, you know, people, some people have, have crossed over uh, to, the, uh, to the other side in the sense of um, they fell out with CBS, but in their time at CBS, both Dan, Dan Rather, you know, starting in the civil rights era, right through the White House years. Um, I used to say, get yourself 50 miles out of airspace in New York and you're like a real guy. <laughs> um, you know, I was blessed really to work with people, even Leslie Stahl, who's like, you know, I think they're carving her face right now on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> um, they, they all shared this unstoppable, desire to kind of uncover and reveal and search for truth and you know Bob Schieffer God love him I mean you know I these are the people who I grew up with and and just value as as human beings and they were great people the richness of the experiences and when you're you know when you're in a war zone or you know you're in a particularly horrific event you share something with people that's quite different. And I I talked about this before. You meet really ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, and they are heroes in in a very kind of regular way, but even you can't believe their lives are as hard as they are, and and yet they have this resiliency uh, to, to move forward. I remember one of the first times I went into uh, Moscow, and it was uh, in the late 80s, and I thought, 
this is the enemy? I said, these people couldn't even organize a club sandwich. <laughs> I mean, it was like unfathomable. And I, I, believe it or not, I was telexing New York on an old tele, tele, teletype machine that you would type and then it would make a tape. And I wrote, I have seen the enemy. I don't think we should be afraid. Yeah. You know, um, but yet you'd meet people who were doing these small acts of meeting with dissenters or, or in China uh, during Tiananmen Square, uh, a dissident. I couldn't believe the heroism uh, of people who just found themselves in those moments. And I think that's what, why it felt so special. And it was like anybody could go home and get married and have a baby, but who got to do this? Mm. You know, who got to watch history? You know, who got to stand at the gates of hell? I like, it was shocking to me that I was getting to do this stuff. I also used to feel like that when I was covering the White House and I would order a helicopter to take me to catch up to the next place. And I thought, holy shit, yeah. I'm being paid as the chopper pulls up and it's, you know, just dusk and I'm thinking, it doesn't get better than this. I look back and, and, you know, nothing is always gravy and you hit walls and you hit roadblocks and you do give up a lot. People do give up a lot of their lives. And, and yet I feel the, just the, the sheer energy today um, that says, I got to do this stuff and I'm still doing it. I, I would never have come off the road had I not been kind of forced to do it. Um, but, um, you know, you, I do see the, the next generation and but the, the baton's kind of still stuck in my hand. I'm not quite willing to hand it off. And I do wonder, do you know when it's time? Because I've seen people, Hang men and women, yes, who can't let go. And I, I have seen it. Does that worry you? No, it scares the shit out of me. Yeah, because... Um, it's sad, don't you think, Susan, when you see people, they disconnect and then they become curmudgeons and they, then they really become a negative energy. They lose what they had. And they're frustrated that they're not being taken seriously because they really do have, or in the day, they had the chops and now people kind of see them as the older person and dismiss them I, I go find back it very I, go, sad. I agree I go back to the word resilient I mean there are things that happen in life and you have to accept them and move on I've seen people really been eaten alive by their own anger or something didn't yeah. work their way or it, you know I, I think though that I I do worry that I won't know when it's time yeah you know to to sort of hold back um, but then I'll go work for like Doctors Without Borders or something because I'm really good at logistics. You're a workaholic, right? I am. Yeah. Delay delivery because you can write the note at 3 a.m. and have it sent at 8.30 in the morning and they won't know you're totally crazy. Yeah. So, um, yes, my office actually had an intervention when I drank a Red Bull, so they were scared. <laughs> I would be scared, Susan, of you with a Red Bull. <laughs> that was pretty scary. But um, do you drink, do you have caffeine in general? I, I drink tea. I don't drink, I've never had a cup of coffee. Never. In, in your whole life? Mm -mm. How have you worked at television and not had coffee? I don't know. Tea. I mean, that's like the go-to. I don't know. I'm a non-sleeper, genetically. My dad was a non-sleeper. I don't feel very good if I slept more than four hours a night. I can't. I just don't feel good. Um, and I know um, 
like people sometimes when they're overtired get cranky I actually feel like I get high it's like I, I'm on some thing I think you're a freak of nature because I, I, people have said I, that <laughs> I know, I, and I mean that. that as a compliment. Yeah, but I, mean, I take that's it a, It's one. highly unusual. I know, and I don't. I don't drink liquor either. So, um, have you ever drunk? I uh, not really. I don't like the. T- I think I have a chemical weird thing. It huh. tastes terrible to me. It tastes like the only drink I've ever loved was a, I think it's called a White Russian because it's like a milkshake. Right. You talked before about Ed Bradley, Leslie Stoll. You talked about the, uh, a voice, a trusting voice, um, Dan Rather. You had the opportunity to work with Walter Cronkite, uh, a man who probably the most famous newsman in the history of television. I agree. It was so clear that no one would ever had or would occupy that space in time. He held the country's hand through the most tragic events. He took us through the space shots he took us through civil rights um you, you know the kennedy assassination on the moon without no. hearing his voice it's part of that whole that it's part of that history it's, absolutely it's, no one ever would ever occupy that space again and and you know world leaders have taken that stand um, but there is no one now that has the power to to help create and take you to uh, take you through a traumatic moment in history, and and that was Cronkite, and obviously the famous uh, takes his glasses off and announces that the president of the United States has been killed is um, was chilling, and I was grateful to be a kid under in his era. Where's the book, Susan? Like. Uh, 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 Forgive me if I if you have one out, but have you no, written a book? No, I no, because you know what? We're observers of history. We don't make history. Yeah, we're observers of things. Um, but you just know, your observations. Have you ever thought about putting that into some kind of? No, book I've been uh, approached. No, no, no. When you talk to somebody like yourself, like, and I, I get to wander back through yeah. this stuff. It is. It's kind of unbelievable. I. You know, and I, I, I was talking to Bob Schieffer recently, and it's just the depth and the breadth of people's careers. And yeah. and the era is different now. There's, there's a lot more opportunities for a lot more people and a lot of young yes. people. And, and is new that a ways. good thing? I, I always think it is. I always think it is. But you, you, you do have difficulty breaking through that cacophony that we talked about and, and having a voice heard. Um, you know, it was funny... Um, I'm a saver. I'm, you know, I collect stuff. And I know you do. That's I've how seen I. Your office. Well, that's how I got the Cronkite script. Actually, the night that Nixon resigned, which was, you know, he threw it in the trash, and I picked it out of the trash, and I said, Walter, don't you want to take this back for historic reasons? He goes, Oh no, no, no. They do a transcript in New York, and I said, Oh, okay. So I took it out, and I walked back to my desk, and. Um, through fires and floods, I have held on to this script, which um, I probably could get an enormous amount of money on eBay for, but it is probably my most prized possession of a moment in history because it's actually, it's Cronkite's own handwriting in correcting, right? And then 
it's top copy and here it says Cronkite and CLW was Charlie West who was his writer at the time and to have copy like this that says good evening the 37th president of the United States resigned today the 38th took office it was an orderly success. part two of this interview to be continued Susan Zarinsky tells us what happened when she got separated in the dark from Dan Rather in a military convoy en route to the city of Kuwait. And she reads from the very script Walter Cronkite read from when Nixon resigned, plus many more news stories from the front line. Don't miss part two of my interview with Z.